Holy are you, Lord. Thank you, Lamb is blessed. Once again, we come to the moment where we open the Word of God and we listen for the voice of God found in His Scriptures. For this first quarter of 2013, we have been laying a foundation dealing with the man Jesus. We've been going through the Gospels, looking at various aspects of Jesus. We've looked at the fact that Jesus was a man just like you and I. We've looked at the fact that Jesus was also God. We've looked at the fact that Jesus struggled the way we struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about the fact that Jesus had power in his word alone to heal people. He didn't even have to be there. We have dealt with numerous aspects of the life of Jesus, and as we're coming down to the end of the quarter, we're coming down towards the end of his life. Today, we deal with a very important topic under the title, Tetelestai. Tetelestai. I've heard so many wonder how to pronounce the word. Somebody mentioned to me last week that someone thought it was to tell a sister. <laughs> Tetelestai. And as is my custom, I invite the children, those 12 years old and under, to take out a sheet of paper. And I want you to count how many times in the sermon I say the word tetelestai. Tetelestai. When you think you have the correct answer, I want you to circle your number. Make sure your name is written across the top and hand it to me at the door on the way out. And if you get the correct number, there will be a prize awaiting you next week. What word are you listening for? Tetelestai. Tetelestai. <laughs> Let's ask the Lord to be with us this morning. Merciful God, in the name of Jesus, we invite you into this moment to anoint your word again, that it might not return into you void, but accomplish that for which you've sent it. I pray, my Father God, that you would be with the hearers and the speaker. Transform this stammering tongue, so that it may speak your word with clarity. Father God, we pray for the grace of your son Jesus to flow in this place. Quiet our hearts. May we be attentive to hear your voice. This is my prayer for Christ's sake, loving you always. Amen. Amen. To tell us die. I read a story about when Rembrandt's famous painting, The Night Watch, was restored and returned to an Amsterdam museum. The painting is a masterpiece, the defining work of Rembrandt's collection. And when it was restored, the curators performed a simple yet remarkable experiment. They asked visitors to submit questions about the painting. And then the curators got together and they answered these questions, about 50 in all, and, and they papered a room in front of the exhibit with these questions and answers. 
Now this room was just before the exhibit and visitors had to pass through this room in order to get to the painting. And you know what? Something remarkable happened. The average length of time people spent viewing the portrait increased from six minutes to over half an hour. Visitors alternated between reading the questions and answers and examining the painting. When asked about this sudden increase in time, the visitors later said that the questions encouraged them to look longer. The questions encouraged them to look closer. The questions helped them see the painting in new ways. The questions. And as I read this, I got to thinking about all the questions I have when I read the Bible. I mean, let's be real, it's not always easy to understand the Bible, is it? Have you ever tried reading the Bible from cover to cover? You start out all right, but then you get bogged down in the begats somewhere. And if you can mass make it past the begats, you end up in the numbers section where it's just name after name after name after name, and you shelve your Bible again. And often as we read, we're left with questions, lots of questions. We wonder why this happened. We wonder what it all means. We wonder why this text is found in the Bible. We have questions. And just like the visitors to that museum, if we allow them to, the questions will cause us to look closer at the Bible, to remember more of the Bible, to appreciate the Bible better. It's a good thing to question the Bible. And I have to admit, even as a pastor, I still have questions about the Word of God. There are some things I just don't get, some things I don't understand. I, I'm not afraid to admit it. There are some parts of Scripture that just puzzle me. And one of those places is a statement Jesus made from the cross. You would think that if it was from the cross that Jesus said it, it must be very important. And yet it puzzles me. I, I, I didn't quite understand it. It baffled me. The Bible says that he shouted one word from the cross, Tetelestai. Tetelestai. Many of you are wondering since last week, what does Tetelestai mean? Well, it's a Greek word. And although it is one word in Greek, it is three words in English. Most of your Bibles translate it, it is finished. Seems simple enough, but it begs so many questions. The more I studied this passage, the more I wondered what was finished. Who finished it? Why was it so important that Jesus shouted it from the cross just before he died? And what does it mean for you and me to tell us that? It is finished. What could it possibly mean? Take your Bible and turn with me to John, the 18th chapter. John, the 18th chapter, and we're looking down at verse 28 and 29. John, the 18th chapter, verses 28 and 29. I'm reading from the New International Version this morning. John, the 18th chapter. Verses 28 and 29. When you have it, please say amen. amen. You need more time, say, hold on, preacher. 
John, the 18th chapter, beginning in verse 28. Listen to the word of God. It says, Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the place, did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Verse 29. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? It had been a long night. The sun was just beginning to peek up over the eastern horizon when they shoved Jesus into Pilate's courtyard. The morning air was still crisp with the cool night breezes. You could almost hear the echo of the angry voices bouncing about the stone fortress. If you listen closely, you can hear the tread of sandaled feet upon the cold cobblestone floor as those men waited impatiently for Pilate to arrive from his bedchamber. And can you see the annoyance on Pilate's face from having been awakened from his warm bed beside his lovely wife, having to come down and decide a case so early in the godforsaken morning? Can you hear the attitude in his voice when he's asked them, what charges are you bringing against this man? And what transpires next is basically criminal. You have to read it for yourself. The Jewish leaders begin to haggle with Pilate like merchants in a marketplace trying to pressure him to killing Jesus even though they didn't have an indictment against him. Pilate pushes back and tries to reassure them that he finds no fault in Jesus, but he doesn't have the courage to let him go either. And so they go back and forth arguing, one after the other, until finally Pilate compromises with their demands and orders the innocent Jesus to be punished. And the Word of God says in chapter 19 and verse 1, just one verse, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Can you see them? The soldiers stripped Jesus stark naked in front of everyone and forced his hands into shackles above his head. The morning chill sends goose bumps all up and down Jesus' exposed body as he stood there being laughed at and humiliated. Watch closely. Can you see them? Two soldiers pick up a cat of nine tails with which to inflict the punishment. The cat of nine tails was their favorite whip. It had a wooden handle that was about a foot long, and, and they would take a, a good piece of, of leather, and they would wrap it all the way around, tightly wound around the piece of wood. And, and then on the end, they would have nine strips hanging down from which it gets its name, the cat of nine tails. And on the end of these strips, these nine tails, they would tie little shards of metal and broken pieces of pottery. It was their favorite weapon of choice, and they would get a nice, good grip. And if Jesus' beating was like all the others, you would have seen one soldier stand behind him over his left shoulder, and the other soldier stand behind him on the right. And when given the order, they began to alternately whip Jesus from his shoulders down to the soles of his feet. Can you hear the tails of the whip whistle through the air and crack upon Jesus' back? First, one soldier. 
and then the other. Then again. Then again. Once more. Over and over. They beat sweet Jesus. Watch him as he winces with each blow. Watch him as he grits his teeth in pain. Can you see him? Can you see him? I was reading where a doctor took the time to study what a beating would have been like. He decided to investigate from a physical standpoint all that Jesus had to endure that day. And I must confess, it's not easy to hear. He said that at first the whip would have caused internal bleeding all up and down his back and thighs. But as they continued to relentlessly whip him, the shards of metal would have broken through the skin, his tender skin. They would have ripped his back into shreds as Jesus hung on there. The slashes would have sliced deeper and still deeper. This doctor said it would have broken through the subcutaneous tissues beneath the surface. And then deeper still, they would have beat him into the muscles themselves. This would have caused spurts of blood from arterial bleeding, he said. And then the whip would have scraped and scratched the bones themselves. They kept on beating Jesus and beating him, one after the other, over and over again. Can you imagine it? I say, can you imagine it? In fact, historians tell us that the Romans had a nickname for flogging. They called it the half-death. The half-death. They would beat you until you were literally almost halfway dead within an inch of your life. The half-death. They would beat you until your back and legs were an unrecognizable mess of wounds. And on some rare occasions, they would turn the prisoner around and begin to wail in the front of them as well. Can you imagine that? Those nine tails slicing up and down their naked chest and groin. In fact, historians tell us that many people died from the beating alone. And we too often rush right past it. It's only one verse in John after all. But this, the word of God says, they did to Jesus. And as, though, as those soldiers took satanic delight in their work, as they laughed with glee at his every cry of pain, as they whipped him mercilessly until he was half dead, I hear again Isaiah saying, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Those wounds should have been ours. That flogging belonged to us. He took our place. But every time that soldier whipped our Jesus, every time the tail sliced through his flesh, 
Every time they dug deeper and deeper, they didn't know that our healing was flowing from his veins. Then the word of God says, in chapter 19 and verse 14, the Bible goes on to say, in the day, it was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. In verse 16, finally Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Can you see Jesus? He's shaking something terrible when they tie the rough-hewn cross beam across his raw shoulders. He almost collapses beneath the weight. He's lost so much blood from the flogging. It's a miracle that he's able to stand at all. In fact, they eventually have to grab a a bystander, an African named Simon, to carry the cross from Jesus, just can't take it anymore. His body has just given out. He doesn't have any more strength. And Jesus was not a wimp. I, I hate those portraits that paint Jesus as this weak, emaciated man. Jesus was a carpenter. And in their day and age, they didn't have the type of tools, the power tools we have. He did it all by hand. He was a carpenter by trade. This man was strong. He was sturdy. He walked everywhere that he went. He was no wimp. Yet Jesus had been beaten so mercilessly that he couldn't carry his own cross to Calvary. Can you see them? A horrific parade. The soldiers marched Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem down the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. They make their way to a little hill outside of Jerusalem called the Skull, Calvary. And along the way, Jesus is spit at. He's yelled at. He's cursed at. He's laughed at. Do you see him? There at the skull at Golgotha, Jesus is again stripped of all his clothes. Naked, they thrust him backward onto the ground and stretch his arms wide upon the beam. One soldier takes a rusty spike and with awful precision lines it up in the soft tissue between the bones in his wrists. And if you listen carefully to the text, you can almost hear the ringing of the hammer as it strikes the nail. If you listen carefully, you can almost hear Jesus shout out in pain. If you listen carefully, you can almost hear the mocking laughter of Jesus' enemies. The soldier lines up Jesus' dusty feet on the beam, those feet which had been tireless on missions of mercy, those feet who had walked upon the angry billows of water, those feet which Mary had watered with her tears and wiped with her hair, those feet the soldier pierces through with a long nail and fastens to the cross. You can almost see the soldier's muscles straining as they heave the cross up into its place and let it drop with a thud into the earth. There he is, the master of the universe, the most powerful being that ever was and ever will be, hung up between heaven and earth upon a cross. As the weight of his body drags upon the nails in his wrists, 
excruciating pain shoots down through his arms and up through his fingertips. In fact, the pain he is feeling is the very definition of the word excruciating. Did you know that the word excruciating comes from the Greek, which literally means from out of the cross? His torture defines excruciating. And when the pain in his arms seem unbearable, Jesus pushes up upon the nails in his feet, only to feel searing pain shoot through his legs. There is no reprieve. There is no relief. There is no rest. There is no one to wipe the sweat running down his forehead from burning his eyes. There is no one to shoo away the flies from his torn back and, or keep the vultures from circling over his head. There is no one to help him when his arms finally become fatigued and his muscles begin to cramp, knotting them in deep, throbbing pain. Hanging by his arms, Jesus' pectoral muscles became paralyzed and his intercostal muscles refused to act. Soon he can breathe in but he cannot exhale without pulling up upon the nails in his hands. Every single breath comes accentuated with pain. Take a moment and just breathe in. Now exhale. How many times a minute do you think you breathe? Breathing is involuntary for us. We don't even think about it. But each time Jesus took a breath, he had to pull up on the nails just to exhale. Breathe in, everyone, and exhale. Jesus' raw back rubbed up and down the splintered wood every time he breathed. Everyone breathe in. Now exhale. With short little breaths, Jesus clung to life. Everyone breathe in. Now exhale. For hours, Jesus hung there struggling to breathe and racked with searing pain. Everyone breathe in. Now exhale. And the truly sad thing about it all is that Jesus' physical pain couldn't be compared to his spiritual pain. Spiritually, he was tasting the full wrath of hellfire for each and every one of us. Jesus gave his life for you, for your mistakes, for your thoughtlessness, for your rebellion, we all have messed up, and then we ask for forgiveness, and we move on with our lives, but that forgiveness came with a price. It wasn't cheap. He died for you. He died for me. And I hear again Isaiah saying, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. It is, a miraculous, it is miraculous that with all his fighting to breathe, he would have taken the time to say anything from the cross. Yet we know he has seven last statements that he makes, and they must be very important if he had to say them while struggling to breathe. And the last of those words was a one-word shout 
from the center cross to tell us that. To tell us that. It is finished. But what was finished? The pain? The suffering? The agony? What was finished? The apostles must have been disappointed. They had so much hope placed in Jesus. Never had they met a man like this man. They had been amazed when Jesus touched that leper, and immediately this leper's skin was transformed. They had been dumbfounded when by Jesus' command alone, the centurion's servant had been healed from a distance, long-distance healing. They were amazed. They had been afraid when Jesus walked on the water and seemed to be passing the boat by. They were afraid when Jesus told the wind and the waves, be quiet, shut up. And the winds and the waves started stopped fooling around. They had never met a man like this. They had such high hopes for him. They could never have imagined that it would end like this, a beaten, humiliated, suffering criminal. Who would want to be associated with this loser? This could not have been the design of God. Maybe they had been deceived somehow. Maybe they had gotten it all wrong. They were confused. They were flabbergasted. They were discouraged. And while we know how this story ends, they didn't have a clue while it was happening to their master. Even though Jesus had warned them about it, they still didn't get it. Oh, it's easy to read about the disciples' misunderstanding of the cross. It's easy to shake our heads at their disbelief and their stupidity, but we're like them. We weren't there. We didn't see the beating. We weren't there. We didn't stand among the crowds and hear them make fun of our Lord. We weren't there. We weren't there when they watched him breathe his laugh. We were, last, we weren't there. We can't begin to comprehend how much pain they must have been feeling, but we are just like them. There come times in our lives when we just don't know what's happening to us. Can I talk about it for a moment? We go through these dark places, and we wonder if God truly has a design for our lives. We wonder if we got our signals crossed. We wonder if we misunderstood God. Our hopes are disappointed. Our dreams seem shattered. Our joy seems thwarted. Don't take my word for it. Ask that believer who has been out of work for months on end. Ask them how they feel as they go from interview to interview without so much as a callback. Ask them as they sit around their kitchen table, anxiously trying to figure out how to juggle the bills again so that this meager unemployment check can keep them afloat for just one more month. Ask them, and they may just tell you about their fear. They too might wonder, as the disciples did before them, does God really have a plan? Is he really looking out for me? Can't he see the bills piling up? Can't he see that I'm in trouble? I'm drowning in debt. Ask God about that plan. Don't believe me? Ask the father whose home has now gone into foreclosure. Ask him how he feels when he's on hold with the banks that have caused his mortgage to balloon out of control. Ask him what he thinks about late at night when he's staring up at the pattern in his ceiling, realizing that they might not have a roof over their head much longer. Maybe he's wondering, does God really have a design for my life? Is God too busy with the salvation of my soul to care about the home for my body? Ask him about God.
Don't believe me? Ask the child who pretends to sleep at night while her parents argue in the other room. Ask her how she feels when she stares up at her mother applying makeup in the mirror to cover the bruises and black eyes from her father. Ask her if she cowered in a corner of her closet when daddy gets that way. Or does she bob her fist and can't wait until she's strong enough and big enough to fight back? And when she prays, does she question God as to whether or not he has a plan? Does she doubt if God even exists because of the pain she feels in her heart? Does she wonder if there's a design for her life? Ask her. Oh, it's easy to sit back in comfortable chairs and wonder how the disciples misunderstood what God was up to. But when it happens to us, when the way forward seems blocked, when the walls seem to close in around us, when the light at the end of the tunnel seems to have gone out because somebody didn't pay the PG&E, we too wonder at the design of God. How can this be? Does God even have a plan or is he just winging it up there? Maybe we too want to cry out like Jesus did from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What did I ever do to you? And when we get to that place, that place of desperation, that place where we are begging God for an answer, that place where we are seeking a word from the Lord, God has a word for us. It's just one word in Greek, three words in English, tetelestai. It is finished. You see, notice with me in chapter 19, in verse 28, this is what the Word of God says. It says, later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Hmm. Did you catch it? That in the middle of his pain, right there at the worst possible moment, when Jesus' very life was ebbing away, the Bible says Jesus knew that all was now completed. Hmm. But what was completed? Jesus told his disciples in John 4 and verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Hmm. It was Jesus' mission to do his father's will. In fact, when Jesus said it was his job to finish his father's work, he, the word finish is the same root word for tetelestai. Yeah, yeah. He said, it's my job to tetelestai, my father's work. Mm -hmm. So how did he know what his father's will was? How did he know? Did he have a vision? Did God speak to him especially? Because, you know, he is Jesus. He is God's boy. Maybe he had a special revelation. But the text tells us something else. The text says, later knowing that all was completed, so the scripture would be fulfilled. The scripture would be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus knew his father's will because the scriptures told him so. The same scriptures that we have before us, Jesus had before him. The same way he can learn God's will for him through scriptures, we can learn God's will through the scriptures too. Jesus looked to the scriptures to understand what God's will was. It was Isaiah, for example, who predicted that there would be something different about this child. Uh huh. His entire life was predicted in scripture. For Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what else? The Prince of Peace. 
Not only did the scriptures predict that it would be God who was born among us, but it actually predicted where he'd be born. For Micah wrote and said, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose, o whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Micah 5 and verse 2. What's more, the scriptures predicted what his mission would be in Isaiah, who wrote, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness from the prisoners. And the scriptures didn't just predict how he would live. They also predicted how he would die. For the Bible says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes, how many? Just a few. Everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. John 3 and verse 15. And Jesus stayed in the center of his Father's plan from the cradle to the grave. God had a plan, and Jesus fulfilled every jot and every tittle. And what's more, is God has a plan for your life. Yes, he does. God has dreamed a dream, and he had you on his mind. He dreamed a dream for you. It is unique to you. Nobody else can fulfill what God had in store when he made you. No one can take your place. You are not a mishap. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident, no matter what your parents told you about how you came into this world. You're not, you did not take God by surprise. God had a plan just for you. It's just as uniquely tailored as your fingerprints. It's just as uniquely tailored as your DNA. God has a plan just for you. You are not an afterthought for God. He's been planning for you from ages past. You were on his mind. He set the stage for you. He gave you the talents that you have. There is a righteous wind at your back pushing you forward towards the dream that God has for you. God is dreaming about you. He's thinking about you right now. He's got a plan for you. Don't believe me? Ask Jesus who said, what is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than many sparrows. Can you imagine that? God knows how many hairs are on your head. No, 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 more than that. He, he, doesn't just, he hasn't just counted your hairs. The Bible says your hairs are numbered. Mm -hmm. In other words, when you brushed your hair this morning, he knows which hairs came out in your brush. Yeah, it had a place. In fact, it had a number. He knew that that was hair number 4,562. God knew what number it was. It had a place. God has numbered every single hair on your head. Now, if he cares about the hairs on your head, what do you think he thinks about you? Are you hearing me this morning? God has a plan just for you. So no matter how dark your current circumstances may be, God has a plan for you. You may be confused right now. You might not understand what's happening in your life. You might not get why it is that you're going through what you're going through. But don't fear. God has a plan.
You didn't get to that place without his plan. He's got a dream for you. In fact, God's plan for his own son led him to a cross. Now, if his own son had a cross in the middle of God's will for him, you can be assured that there are some dark places in the will of God for you. Unfortunately, that's the way God's plan must work in a world of sin. But take heart. God has a plan to deal with sin too. In fact, it can be found in the cry from the sinner cross. Tetelestai. It is finished. I've mentioned once before that I love the word pictures found in scripture. The word tetelestai has its own word picture. It literally means I have reached the end. I've crossed the finish line. Oh, you didn't get that. Let me put it this way. If you'll indulge me for just a moment, I, I'd like to take a fanciful trip in your imagination to explain what tetelestai means. It's kind of like a race that's being run. Yeah, you can imagine the stadium is packed with spectators, can't you? The crowds are cheering. The fans are waving flags. The announcers are chatting. The whole universe is watching as the runners take the field. You see God has a team that's running this relay. They're dressed in white and they're ready to run. They've got God's grace at their backs and they're favored to win. But old Satan, the devil, the serpent himself, got a team that's running too. Oh yes, he's, he's, got, he's got sin on his team. He's got the grave on his team. He's got hell on his team. And running the anchor leg is death itself. They are undefeated. Nobody had ever beat them, and everybody is wondering who is going to win. So as the runners take their place, you can almost hear the officials shout, on your mark. Get set. Pow, when they're off. The first runner in God's team is Adam himself. He leaps forward in a good stride, and the crowd begins to shout, go, Adam, go. But right out the gate, he stumbles at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin takes the lead. But Adam doesn't give up. Adam passes the baton on to Noah, and Noah starts to run. And the crowd shout, go, Noah, go. He runs with breakneck speed. He runs with great form. In fact, he made the team because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he starts off well, but he gets tripped up on the other side of the flood when he planted a vineyard and got himself drunk. And sin extended its lead. Yeah, yeah. But Noah doesn't give up. Noah passes the baton to Abraham. And Abraham begins to run, and the crowds begin to shout, Go, Abraham, go. So Abraham runs with high knees and his back straight. He's running the race well when he gets tripped up and he lies about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife, and, and sin gets further ahead. I, I said, but Abraham doesn't give up. Abraham passes the baton to Moses, and Moses begins to run, and the crowds begin to shout, Go, Moses, go. So Moses leans forward and pumps his legs faster, trying to catch up. He's fleet of foot and making good time when all of a sudden he gets tripped up when he, he, should, he strikes the rock, when he was supposed to speak to the rock, and sin laughs as he further gets ahead, further and further. But Moses doesn't give up. But Moses passes the baton to David. 
and David begins to run, and the crowd starts shouting, Go, David, go. So David runs like none other. After all, David is a man after God's own heart, and he's running up on his toes, and he's sprinting faster and faster and faster than anybody before, when all of a sudden he gets distracted by a beautiful babe bathing called Bathsheba, and his sin gets further ahead. I tell you, it doesn't look good for humanity. God's team seems to be outnumbered. God's team seems to be outmatched. God's team seems to be outgunned. God's team is falling further and further behind. Sin is kicking their tail. It doesn't look good. But David doesn't give up. David passes it off to our anchor leg. Our anchor has got to make up for lost time. He's got to make up for where Adam failed. He's got to make up for where Noah failed. He's got to make up for where Abraham failed. He's got to make up for where Moses failed. He's got to make up for where David failed. But they placed it in the right hands. For if anybody can do it, it's him. You see, he was born in Bethlehem raised in Nazareth. He's a Joseph's stepson. He's Mary's firstborn. He goes by several names. I've heard somebody call him the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I heard he's been called the, the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valley, the Bright and Morning Star. I've heard somebody call him the Resurrection and the Life, uh, the Way and the Truth. I heard somebody called him the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. I heard somebody called him the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the word. I heard somebody call him the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I heard him called a lot of things, but around here in the simple folks, we just called him Jesus. Yeah, sweet Jesus. And Jesus got the baton and he began to run. Go, Jesus, go. Faster than Usain Bolt, uh, quicker than Michael Johnson, speedier than Carl Lewis. Jesus ate up the track like a starving man on Thanksgiving. He ran so fast that his cleats sparked fire and his legs were a blur. Go, Jesus, go. Sin became nervous as he heard footsteps behind him getting closer and closer. Now 10 feet, now 8 feet, now 6 feet. Go, Jesus, go. Now 4 feet, now 2 feet. He's right on sin's heels. Go, Jesus, go. Jesus passed up sin, said, get thee behind me, Satan. And you ran on. He ran on. He ran on. He ran on. He ran through Gethsemane. Jesus ran past Pilate. He ran through a flogging. He ran through Jerusalem. He ran up Calvary. He ran up a rugged cross, all at the center of his Father's will. And there, right there, before sin could trip him up, Jesus throws his head back, clears his throat, and shouted for the entire universe to hear, Tetelestai, Tetelestai, I have reached the goal line. Tetelestai is the shout of victory. He had completed his father's will, and now he offers to share it with you and me, the rewards of his running. Our team wins. Our team wins. Tetelestai, it is finished. How many believe the word of God today? How many believe? How many believe? If you believe, then take your hymnal and turn with me to hymn 163 at the cross. At the cross. This victory is ours. Hymn 163, At the Cross.
at the cross where I first saw the light. Hymn 163. All over the building, let's lift our voice and declare how good God has been going to Calvary for us. All together, alas and did, alas and did my say, and did my would he devote that sacred head for someone such at the cross? Come on, at the cross, at the cross. Where I first saw the light And the burden of my heart rolled away It was there by faith I received my sight And now I Verse 2, verse 2 Was it for crimes? Was it for crimes that I have done? He suffered Amazing pity, amazing pity, grace unknown and love. Oh, lift your voice and sing at the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by I received my sight. Verse 3, but drops of grief, come on. But drops of grief can end the Here, Lord, here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all. Oh, at the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by I received my sight. Oh, come on. At the cross, at the cross, at the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Just keep playing softly in the background. Keep playing softly in the background. The story is told. True story. Many years ago of a man who was on death row. And it didn't look good. Didn't look good at all. He'd, he'd used up all his appeals, and he had gone to the Supreme Court, and they had rejected his appeal. It, was, it looked like he was going to be put to death. And he had one last hope. He had one thing left he could do. He could appeal for pardon. And so this prisoner wrote this beautiful, flowing letter to the governor of his state. And he begged him, please, please give me a pardon. I'm a changed man. This time in prison has made me a different person. I, I know what I did was wrong, but please give me another chance. He wrote eloquently of 
the family he was leaving behind and how they were looking to him for support. He, he needed help. Please, please pardon me. The letter made it to the governor's desk and he read it and it moved the governor to tears. And so the governor made up his mind that he was going to pardon the man, but he wanted to check to make sure that he was actually a changed man. So the governor signed the pardon, and, and then when he did something that nobody else had ever tried, the governor decided to put on some priestly garments. Yeah, he put on the, 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 the pastor's collar, and he wore all black, and he went to the prison with a giant cross hanging around his neck. He, he walked up to the prison with, with a pardon tucked inside his Bible, and, and he went up to the, the warden and said, let me see the prisoner. The governor himself had come down to pardon the man. And as he, the warden, opened the prison gates and let him in, he walked back there and he saw the prisoner standing there and, and he said to the prisoner, Sir, I've got good news for you. The prisoner, who was discouraged and despondent, looked up from his bed and saw this priest standing there. He shouted back at him, Go away. He said, No, I've got good news for you and it's found right here in the Word of God. I've got good news for you. But that... Prisoner said, I don't want to hear anything, priest. They're about to put me to death. I care less about God. I care less about what you have to say. Leave me alone. And, and, and the, the governor, disguised as a priest, kept pleading with him. Just give it a moment. Give me a chance. Let me open the word of God to you. There's something you need to see in here. But the prisoner told him to leave. And so finally the governor tucked his Bible under his arm, walked out the prison gates. Shortly thereafter, the warden came up to him and to the man, to the prisoner, and said, well, did you get the governor's pardon? And the prisoner said, what do you mean? He said, oh, didn't you see that? That was the governor that just walked out of here. He, was, he had his pardon with you. And this prisoner couldn't believe what he had just done. He had just walked away from a pardon that was just for him. The reason we know this story is because this, the prisoner wrote a letter to his family. And he said, I want you to not cry for me. He said, because I'm not here because of the crime I did. I'm not being put to death for the crime that I did before. I have been forgiven for that. I'm being put to death because I refused the pardon. I'm going to my death because I refused the pardon. I've got news for somebody here. God is offering pardon to everybody in this place. And the word of God says, your sins cannot keep you out of heaven because your sins have been paid for at Calvary's cross. The only reason you don't make it in is because you refuse the pardon. So every head is bowed and every eye is closed in this moment. As we're coming around to the season when we remember Easter, when we remember our Lord's resurrection, when we begin to talk about Jesus' death, even as we prepare for communion next week, when we remember the body and blood of Christ, I'm calling to somebody in this place today who, first of all, needs a pardon. You know you've messed up. Nobody needs to tell you anything. I don't have to say a word. You know you messed up. And you know what you deserve. That beating that Jesus received, that's supposed to be your beating. The cross that Jesus died on, that's supposed to be your cross. But he went to the cross so that you wouldn't have to. He offers you grace free of charge. It's free, but it's not cheap. And he's offering you a pardon today. Today, I'm giving you an opportunity in the name of Jesus to accept the pardon that Jesus is offering. 
If you're in this place today and you want that pardon, just stand to your feet right where you are. You want the pardon of God today. Just stand right where you are. Is there one? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Stand right to your feet right now. Just hop up. Just pop up. You want the pardon of God over your life. Just pop up. Just stand up right now. Stand right where you are. You want the pardon of God on your life. Amen. Amen. My next appeal is this. Somebody came into this place going through a tough time. They're in a dark place. Perhaps they've gotten to the place where they feel like God might not have a plan for them anymore. They're going through tough times. Perhaps there's a family member who's on their deathbed. Perhaps you're having financial trouble. Perhaps there's problems in your marriage. You're just going through a tough time right now. And you want to be reminded again today. You want somebody to pray with you through your tough time. You want to be reminded again today that God has a plan that's designed just for you. That he hasn't forgotten you in the midst of your trials. If you want somebody to pray with you, the elders are standing right here. Come now. You want somebody to pray with you as you go through your tough time, through your dark place. Come now. Come quickly. Come now. Just slip on out and come now. You want prayer. The elders are, are waiting. Come now. Come now. You want somebody to pray with you. Make your move right now. Come now. Come now. The elders are waiting. Come now. Come now. Is there another? Come right now. Come right now. You want prayer. Come now. The elders are waiting to pray. Come now. Even as they pray, my last appeal is this. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself, you've never met him for yourself, you cannot say with assurance that I know Jesus. Just raise your hand. It would be my pleasure to introduce you to the man of Galilee. Just raise your hand right where you are. You want to know Jesus for yourself. Just raise your hand. This is your moment. Just raise your hand. Amen. I see your hand. I see your hand. One of the Bible instructors made the way over to my sister. Just raise your hand. You want to know Jesus for yourself. Right here in the back. Right here in the back. Keep your hand raised, please. Somebody's coming to you right now. Keep your hand raised. The little one down here raising their hand as well. Just right here. My hand's raised right here. Sister Simmons, right here. Right in front of you. No, no, no. In the, on the last row. On the last row. Last row. Last row. Just raise your hand so she can see you. Stay right here. Right here. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We have a little one right here as well. Child. Is there another? Is there another? You want to know more about Jesus Christ? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, 
we thank you so much that you would send your son on so costly a mission. We thank you so much that Jesus ran the race on our behalf and he made up the distance for us, dear Lord. We couldn't do it. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short of your glory. But Jesus made it all the way. He made it to Calvary's cross without sinning once and declared it is finished to tell us that. We thank you so much that he's offering to us the pardon that he bought with his own blood. We pray, Father God, for all those who are standing here who want that pardon over their lives. We thank you, Father, for all those in the sound of my voice. And I pray that when you shall come in the clouds of glory, that you will not forget not one of us, Lord. Each and every one of us might go back to be with you, to stay with you for ceaseless ages of eternity. This is my prayer for Christ's sake, loving you always. Amen. Amen. Let's sing that chorus again. Uh, at the cross. The burden of my heart rolled away. It was there. Come on, one more time, all over the building. The cross at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Once and I'll say it again. I don't know why everybody's not sitting up in this church getting this message from God today. You got to tell somebody this week about how good God is. And tell them if they need to get rid of their burdens and their problems, be here at the Elmhurst Seventh-day Adventist Church on Sabbath morning so they can receive this blessing. Amen. Amen. I want to just make a quick announcement. Men, if I can.